Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 15 It was not difficult to get access to Leszczycki. No introduction or influence was necessary, for he would listen to any one play who came and knocked at his door. Strange, indeed, were some of the letters he received, letters from all parts of the world, oftentimes containing nothing about the applicant's talent for the piano, but chiefly taken up with a report of his or her good looks, amiability, and the vague desire to get out into the world and achieve something. A letter from a bohemian girl was brought by four gentlemen, who made an appointment with Leszczycki and took up a great deal of his time, telling him how this young woman had strange fantasies all her life how the birds singing in the trees had affected her, and that since childhood the sound of a brook had inspired her to write poems. She had been blessed with many love affairs, and each had contributed something to her ability to interpret the emotional heights and depths of music. Schumann, she said, made her melancholy. Chopin? sentimental, and when she played Beethoven, she felt herself translated to the skies. Leszczycki would be the very one, they thought, to recognize her sublime talent. They dwelt upon her marvelous endowments, including her poetic temperament, and were greatly astonished that he did not respond, as they had expected, and promised to receive her with open arms. Some were not at all daunted when he told them, on hearing them play, that they had no talent. Oftentimes there was absolutely nothing at all to justify their ambitions. Many of these applicants were as blissfully ignorant of their own incapacity as they were confident of Leszczycki's power to make musicians of them. America, too, contributed its share of freaks to the hosts of would-be pianists that went to him for lessons. One entirely misguided young man came boldly forward with the utmost confidence in himself. He and his mother had first appeared at one of the Thanksgiving receptions at the American Embassy, where Mrs. Samuel Clemens was among those who received. They were humble, ignorant people, and sympathizing with their embarrassment in such surroundings, Mrs. Clemens went out of her way to be kind to them. They appeared to expect much from the influence of the Clemens family, who were living in Vienna at the time. The young man went to see Miss Clemens, who did not spare him a very frank and discouraging opinion of his talent. To be told by Clara Clemens that he had better not even try to see Leszczycki made little impression upon him. At Mr. Clemens' suggestion, he sought encouragement from the younger daughter, Jean, who received him with her usual gentleness. Then he went to Leszczycki with a little speech carefully prepared. 
First he asked the price of lessons, and then went on to say that he had sold his cigar store in America to come to Vienna to devote his life to becoming an artist. His mother had come with him to help. "'How does she propose to do that?' Leschetizky asked. "'By making paper flowers until I can earn a living by the piano,' he replied. Leschetizky was appalled by the young man's ignorance and egotism. "'You are not even educated,' Leschetizky began. "'I don't suppose you can read, to say nothing of knowing music. "'What do you expect to do?' "'I'm going to do my best,' was the answer. "'But, my dear boy,' said Leschetizky, "'what do you think your best can be? "'You must remember that you are here in Vienna, "'among clever and gifted people.' "'Oh, yes,' he answered. "'I have met a number of them.' He said that the Clemenses had been kind to him, and that he and his mother had been invited to the home of Mrs. Krause. Mrs. Krause had asked them to come again, and had said she would do all she could to help them. He had met one of Leschetizky's pupils also, Miss Newcomb, who had likewise encouraged him, and had called Leschetizky one of the kindest people in the world. Leschetizky assured him that the kindest thing he could say to him was that his playing showed neither talent nor knowledge. But the youth protested that he was quite sure the master was wrong. Hadn't Paderewski begun at the foot of the ladder? Why couldn't he? He refused to be discouraged. No one could discourage him. He would go to someone else and study, and return in exactly one year to show Leschetizky how mistaken he had been. The young man did stay on in Vienna, and in time rose to a high position, not as a pianist, but as the Princess Metternich's coachman. Even where there was little excuse for seeking his advice, Leschetizky rarely hesitated to give it. He laughed heartily when he told of one instance when he yielded too readily. Two American women once came to play for him. After he had heard them, he asked, with subtle politeness, why they did not study singing instead of the piano. They answered that if that was his advice, they would do exactly as he said. A year or two afterward, when Leschetizky was playing in some city in Germany, two ladies announced themselves and asked to sing for him. He listened to them, and then, to their utter amazement, asked why they did not study the piano which was so much easier in some respects than singing. When they replied that it was he who had advised them to take up singing, Leschetizky was completely at a loss to know how to get himself out of the embarrassing situation. He once asked why it was that so many young American women came to study in Vienna just after they had been married. Sometimes, when a young woman played very badly at her lesson, he would ask her why she didn't marry instead of trying to learn the piano. Very often the reply was, Why, Professor, I am married. Well then, he would reply, you should go home and present your husband with a baby. One day he showed a letter from a gentleman in America thanking him for urging his wife to give up music and go home. She was one pupil, he said, who had evidently taken his advice 
and this was the first husband who had ever written to thank him. Sometimes he was able to rid himself very quickly of the hopelessly untalented. Upon entering the music room one morning, he found two ladies sitting there, dressed in deep black as solemn as crows. When he came in, neither rose nor spoke. Leshetitsky waited. At no word or sign from them, he waved his hand and exclaimed, Auf! They rose to their feet, but still failed to express themselves in any way. Leshetitsky then pointed to the piano. Spiel! he commanded. One of them played, whereupon Leshetitsky pointed to the door. Vic! he said. With three words, the visitors were received, heard, and dismissed. Needless to say, they were never seen again. Spectacular entrances were sometimes made by people who afterward claimed Leshetitsky's most serious consideration. Laughing a little at his own part in the affair, he once related the story of his introduction to a certain pupil, now a musician of excellent reputation. This pupil appeared in the music room one day, demanding a hearing with Leshetitsky in a most unusual and erratic manner. After playing, he wanted to know at once about beginning his lessons. Leshetitsky was not at all sure he wanted to teach him, and said so. The man was not young. His style was muscular and heavy-fisted. "'You are Jewish,' Leshetitsky began, "'and for that reason I have a certain faith in your talent.' He protested, but Leshetitsky went on. "'You needn't conceal that from me. "'If you are to study with me, we must understand each other.' The man continued to look about the room with a rather wild-eyed expression, and then deliberately began to roll up his sleeves. Leshetitsky slipped quickly through the side door of the music room. When he came in again, he was prepared for any emergency. There was a revolver in his pocket. It appeared, however, that no pugilistic assault had been intended. The pianist had merely wished to exhibit a portion of his technical equipment, a pair of powerfully developed forearms. One day a charming Londoner asked permission for an interview. His interview became a pleasant conversation with Leshetitsky, who rather prolonged it than otherwise, fearing to break the spell by approaching the subject of music. But the excuse for the visit being music, he was invited to play. What was Leshetitsky's astonishment to hear him play faultlessly and with expression his own piece, The Two Larks. On being asked to play further, the visitor announced that it was the only piece he had ever played. He said he had improvised all his life, but wanted a real accomplishment for the London season. This is something new to me, said Leshetitsky. Students who cannot play at all by ear, I advise most earnestly to cultivate the quality. Many pianists deplorably lack it, and should try playing simple tunes entirely by ear, training themselves to the habit of improvising also, especially when the memory fails, as it sometimes does in pieces. These students study too much from the theoretical side. But you know nothing of the theory of music, and do not intend to study it, and have been taught one piece entirely by ear. 
I will give you a few lessons myself, said the master, all curiosity and interest. You asked for permission to study with an assistant. I shall take great interest in learning myself what can be done by the ear alone. These lessons were a pleasant diversion to Leshetitsky, who taught him a Chopin nocturne entirely without notes, and the pupil returned to London playing very beautifully this addition to his repertoire. One winter, four child prodigies came to Leshetitsky. The youngest was six and the oldest nine. They were assigned to the assistants, and I was given the one of nine. Leshetitsky considered her the hardest to teach because she was the oldest. A lovely-looking little creature she was, a Russian, slender and tall for her age. Her mother came with her. They had fled from Kiev during a revolution and lived in Vienna in a nearly penniless condition. There was no question of paying for the lessons, but talent was never sent away from Leshetitsky for lack of funds. Of course, everyone was kindly interested in the development of these prodigies, who soon became prominent in the class because of their remarkable talent. I quickly discovered my pupil to be as difficult as Leshetitsky had said. She played a great deal by ear. She could transpose without trouble, and playing from memory in any key was as easy as possible for her, but she could not concentrate her mind. Her tone was beautiful, but she had no memory for phrasing. It was almost impossible for her to change the inflection of the phrase. She might accomplish it once, but it was forgotten as soon as it was done. Catching sight of my beautiful Russian wolfhound in the corner, she would break off in the middle of a piece, jump up from the piano, and exclaim, Oh, what a beautiful dog! As the weeks went by and she was still unprepared to go to Leshetitsky, he used to ask me what was the matter, and seemed disappointed that she was not ready for a lesson. Her mother was much concerned over her slow progress, and I was in despair of finding a way to get hold of her flighty little mind. The six-year-old child had already played in the class, and the other two were amazing everyone with the simple and beautiful expression in their playing. They all had to use the raised pedals, and because of their short arms, to sit on a bench so that they could slide from one side of the keyboard to the other. At last this prodigy came to a lesson with Leshetitsky, to which I accompanied her, anxious to see what his genius for accomplishing wonders would do for her. A Cherny study went perfectly. She was asked to play it in another key, which gave her no trouble. The Schut Canzonetta, which she played next, seemed to please him, and he asked her to transpose that too. This she did, also without any difficulty. All went well at first, but when he told the little girl that he wished her to copy a phrase as he played it, I foresaw difficulties. With the utmost patience he played it for her again and again, speaking in a very calm and kind tone. There was no apparent change whatsoever. Then he tried a more emphatic tone of voice, and it was only then that she made any real attempt to follow him. Under the influence of fright, she seemed to bring some expression into the phrasing. 
Even then she showed herself too slow at changing anything. The six-year-old child, he told us, played her little pieces musically and transposed them as well. Moreover, he found he could influence her in her playing in any way he liked. He thought she showed a certain gift, but it was not the sort he cared to bother with. Only a plastic talent interested him. This he explained to the mother and advised her to take her child to another teacher. He was sure she had to be prodded to study, and he advised me also to discontinue teaching her. The mother's distress was so touching that I promised to go on with her child. She went on her knees to the master, begging for another chance. Their only hope of a decent living was to prepare the little girl for teaching as soon as possible. I tried having her come every morning, hoping to hold her attention more easily in this way before the day brought too much to distract her. When I told this to Leshetitsky, I found that he had given the matter a great deal of consideration. He was very fond of teaching prodigies. He thought that I was probably not enough the master with her. There is a way to make her learn, he said, and if you try what I recommend, there may be a chance for her. The only time that she really listened or paid real attention was when I frightened her. Some people are like horses. When they are nervous, a calm voice will calm them. Others have to be touched with a whip. Now, if you are going to continue with her, I advise you to take your riding whip, and every time she does not pay attention, touch her with it. Privately, I determined to do no such thing. But as the days and weeks went on, and I found no way of getting hold of her easily distracted mind, I told the mother what Leshetitsky had said. She confided to me that the only way she had of making the girl obey was to give her a whipping, and was delighted that Leshetitsky had shown enough interest to make any suggestion at all. Not only touch her, but whip her soundly, she advised. So I began the terrible career of the whip. It took all my courage to touch that beautiful child ever so lightly, but every time her mind wandered to the dog or to some other distraction, I took the whip in my hand. She actually did begin to improve, and in a few months had a long Haydn piece ready to play for Leshetitsky, who asked her how many years it would take her to prepare another lesson. The child progressed very slowly, but Leshetitsky continued to take interest in her, partly for the sake of her mother, whose gratitude was touching. In my experience of teaching in Vienna, one pupil came to me already possessing what Leshetitsky called a splendid technique. It was very unusual for him to speak of a technique as splendid, and he naturally remembered this pupil. And certainly it was a most unusual occurrence for an assistant to be able to start at a stage so advanced. Leshetitsky was quick to note any individuality and to foster it in the lessons, and was only too thankful to find no limitations in the technique. But he preferred a preparation of correctness and good style to a studied interpretation, so that nothing should hinder the quick application of his ideas. It was not long before I realized that this young man had fixed ideas of interpretation, 
and a rigidity of expression that would not please Leschetizky. It seemed also that it would take a long time to eradicate these faults. Leschetizky recommended the G minor ballade of Chopin to prepare for his first lesson, and often inquired if he could play the first phrase well. As time went on, my pupil showed no inclination to accept my suggestions as to the way Leschetizky wanted that first phrase played. I told him Leschetizky would never listen to such an interpretation of it, and I should have to postpone his lesson until he had changed it. He replied that Dalbert's interpretation was more to his liking, but for the sake of a lesson with Leschetizky he would try to conform. When he appeared, Leschetizky said, greeting him, "'You are the one with such an excellent technique. I have been expecting you for a long time. I congratulate you upon your good fingers. To have acquired at your age the degree of technique you have is an achievement in itself.' It shows intelligence and industry, but you mustn't think technique is everything. Now you can really forget your technique and concentrate your whole mind on the artistic use of it. A very good choice, this Chopin ballade. After the first phrase, Leschetizky stopped him. That is not Chopin, he exclaimed. Have you ever read The Life of Chopin? His music must not be declaimed, he said. You must sing it. It must be lyric. Remember, your heart is broken. You want to find a little happiness in this world. And so you sing. Play it this way, Leschetizky said. The pupil tried, but in vain. Did not my assistant show you how I like to hear it played? He asked. The pupil admitted that she had, but said that Dalbert had played it more to his liking and that he had tried to copy him. So you think that is the way Dalbert plays it, do you? Well, if you can play as he plays it, why come to me? Dalbert had played the ballade in Vienna some months before, and Leschetizky had heard him. Going to his piano, he sat down and gave an exact imitation of Dalbert's beautiful rendering of it. Every phrase, almost every note, it seemed, was as Dalbert had played it. He got up again and turned to the pupil, who for the moment appeared rather ashamed of himself. "'You should show my assistant more respect,' said Leschetizky. "'What do you suppose I care about your technique? Anybody can get technique. But I did expect more of you. What a disappointment!' he went on. Here's a technique, a real one. What would some people not make out of it? And here it is of no use. You are a man set in his ways, a block of wood, with no ability beyond this. Quick, out of here, he shouted to him. I've no time to waste, not a moment. I'm growing old, but I shall never be so old that I'll have to teach such as you. The young man made an impertinent reply and started to go. The exit was not speedy enough for Leschetizky, who ran after him and literally pushed him out of the room. "'Oh, oh!' he exclaimed to me. "'How can you bring such a pupil? That man is not teachable. But you will see, he'll try to come again. See that he never does. What was his name? I want to remember, so that there will never be a repetition of this.' 
I cannot vouch for the story, but I heard that the unfortunate young man found courage to return to Vienna a year or two later, disguised by a beard and by another name. Through one of the other assistants a lesson was arranged, but Leschetitsky recognized his hands, and the second exit was as speedy as the first. A pupil who had the misfortune to come for a lesson after any such trying experiences as these was to be pitied, unless he had good playing at his instant command, and would preserve a cheerful demeanour under all circumstances. Leschetitsky liked to be treated with confidence and freedom. He understood perfectly the nervousness of a pupil, and when it did not affect the pupil to the extent of making him incapable of learning, the master grew patient and good-humoured. An English girl, Marie Novello Williams, a pupil preparing with me for Leschetitsky, always kept him good-humoured under all circumstances. It was refreshing to witness these lessons, not only for her facility and her quickness in copying Leschetitsky's playing, but also for her ready answers, which were a source of enjoyment to him. When I took her to her first lesson, she smiled so affably that Leschetitsky was at once encouraged. At the first note, however, she put down the pedal and kept it there for several bars. Very much surprised, Leschetitsky asked her why she had not changed the pedal. "'Because I am so scared of you,' she answered. "'You are really scared of no one,' said Leschetitsky and it is a relief for me to find someone who smiles as you smile. Let us see now if you can smile in your playing. You must smile in your heart, too, and not only wear smiles on your face. At another lesson she appeared very rosy and happy. Another love affair? remarked Leschetitsky. Yes, she answered. I have just made the acquaintance of the chord of the ninth. "'Don't let that set you too free,' replied Leschetitsky. He often related to friends that he had one pupil who was better than a doctor for the nerves. Leschetitsky had the misfortune of being nervous during thunderstorms, and, as during a most violent one, she had been perfectly placid and had played her pieces with the usual concentration of mind, he called her a model of British self-possession.' "'The English make it a point of honour not to be nervous,' he said. "'What a splendid trait!' There were not many students who succeeded as well as she in having an easy and agreeable time during lessons. I had another pupil with many good qualities, but the road for him was long and rough. He was over six feet tall, unusually slender, and had very long hands. There were many mannerisms in his playing, and his way of sitting at the piano was conspicuous, to say the least. He had, however, the ability to study thoroughly, and was a good musician. His good qualities were rather far beneath the surface, and it was always difficult for him to do anything naturally. During his months of preparation, the young man and Leschetitsky met at my house at tea-time, Leschetitsky asked him how he was getting on, and advised him not to hurry, as the more thorough the preparation, the better he would fare in the lesson. "'It is no great pleasure taking lessons of me,' he said. 
You must first get order in your playing. You get the order, then I put in the disorder. As I handed my pupil a cup of tea, I noticed that Leshetitsky could scarcely suppress his amusement. Did you see him? he said to me afterward. He does nothing naturally. If you hand him a cup of tea, he goes through the motions of a contortionist in reaching for it. And did you see him shake all over when I came into the room? I am afraid I am the ogre of Vienna, said Leshetitsky. By the time this pupil was ready for his first lesson, I was still at a loss to know how to warn him of the effect that his mannerisms and whole conduct at the piano would be likely to have upon Leshetitsky's sense of humor. At last I brought myself to say that if he got himself into such ridiculous positions, Leshetitsky would surely think that he did it deliberately. He surprised me by replying that his legs were too long to go straight under the piano, and that he had to twist them around in order to sit near enough to the keyboard to play. I took pains to accompany this pupil to his lesson, and happened to leave the room while he and Leshetitsky exchanged a few words before the lesson began. When I returned, I saw at one piano my pupil sitting in his usual position, while Leshetitsky was lounging back in his chair at his, with his feet resting on the keyboard. There was perfect silence in the room, and not a word was said until I laughed. Leshetitsky asked me solemnly the reason for my mirth. I am laughing at you, I said. Your pupil is not, he answered. He sees nothing queer about this at all. Everyone may sit at the piano as he pleases. He is sitting as he likes, and I am doing the same. Then turning to him, he continued, This is the only thing you have not done today. When the young man explained the reason for his awkward position, it was Leshetitsky's turn to laugh. As he went on with the lesson, the master tried hard to be serious. He had not failed to perceive some talent in spite of these ungraceful attitudes, and in his kindest manner told this pupil to study well and come again after due preparation. This was not so quickly accomplished, for he spent much of his time in trying to rid himself of his eccentricities of manner. Later on, he told me how he had once irritated Leshetitsky by failing to use a little judgment. The master, wishing to test his endurance, told him to play repeated notes in a quick tempo with one finger until that finger was tired. Just then Leshetitsky turned to speak to someone in the room, and a moment or two passed before he could give his attention again to the piano. He found him still repeating the note in a slow tempo by a finger so stiff with fatigue that he could scarcely lift it from the key. To be taken so literally exasperated Leshetitsky, he burst out, You needn't be a fool, even for me. That music room was a place of many dramatic surprises, strange entrances and exits, but Leshetitsky was equal to all the situations which arose. They were real events to him, and he never ignored them. Individuality always held his attention, and to be mistaken in his judgment of a personality he considered a great failure. 
Only such an intensely youthful and courageous spirit as his could have coped with the great variety of temperaments which his reputation as a teacher attracted to Vienna.